0: This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvagi. We're trying to
1: invest in kids, and we want to bank as much educational investment as we can. And if, if COVID allows us to do 80% of the school year in person for 80% of kids, that's a huge amount of investment that we ought to be trying to get.
0: Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. As the fall approaches, one question looms large for every parent in the Commonwealth. Will the schools reopen in September? The answer to this vital question may be the linchpin of our economy and our public health success moving forward. While the waters of the debate have been somewhat muddied by national politics, Massachusetts, with our deep bench of medical and public health expertise, can harness the best science and data to help resolve the school reopening debate. My guest today is Dr. Benjamin Summers. Dr. Summers is a practicing primary care internist and professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He received a PhD in health policy from Harvard and an MD from Harvard Medical School. On July 20th, Dr. Summers, along with three other professors from the Harvard School of Public Health, co-authored a Boston Globe op-ed entitled, Listen to the Science and Reopen Schools. This outlined a scientific case for his argument. Dr. Summers will share his views on how the science of the novel coronavirus should inform our decision to open. My co-host today is Pioneer Institute's Rebecca Paxton. Rebecca has been researching the impact of the novel coronavirus on the health and economy of Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Rebecca.
2: Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Rebecca, you've been
3: studying the deep impact the, the epidemic is having on all of us in Massachusetts. What are you seeing now, in broad terms, how important do you feel schools reopening will be and what would you like to have answered by Dr. Summers?
2: So we continue to see the Bay State slowly reopening while health metrics seem to be heading in the right direction. Um, and I think continuing reopening is going to be contingent on getting kids back to school so that parents can return in person to their full time jobs. Um, I'm really interested in hearing from Dr. Summers about what the data tells us about the feasibility of reopening because right now we're hearing a lot of political chatter.
3: Indeed, uh, there seems to be a debate raging uh, on every uh, corner. So uh, this is top of mind for many of our listeners and many of the folks out there in in Massachusetts uh, looking at the fall. So when we return, uh, we'll be joined by Dr. Benjamin Summers of Harvard Medical School. Okay, welcome back to Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvagi, joined by Pioneer Institutes, Rebecca Paxton. We're now joined by Dr. Benjamin Summers. Welcome to the show, Dr. Summers. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, before we get into uh, current events and our, our debate and our questions at hand, uh, let's set the table for our listeners and share a little bit about your background at the medical school and at the School of Public Health. What is the, um, the scope of your research before uh, COVID-19 uh, eclipsed everything else?
1: So I'm a a health economist and a primary care doctor. I still see patients. I work in a community health center in Boston, uh, and I do research and teaching related to health policy for um, the the safety net, and in particular, for focus on vulnerable populations. So I do a lot of work on affordability of health care. What are the barriers that keep people from getting the care they need? um, What are some of the factors that lead to income uh, and racial and ethnic disparities in health outcomes? Uh, so th- that's my broad set of interests that that's also tying with the clinical work I do in a um, in a Boston neighborhood where a lot of these issues do arise.
3: Now we're going to dive into the questions of whether to open schools in the fall. So I want to, uh, and as a full disclosure, also uh,
1: say that you're a dad as well. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So uh, I have I have two kids who you know elementary school age and. Um, uh, like many parents in the past, uh, five months, I have spent a lot more time doing, uh, child care than I ever had before. Uh, so we, you know, essentially had the kids home from March, um, up until, uh, they were able to start doing a little bit of summer camp a few weeks ago. And every day, uh, my wife and I were with them. So, uh, that, that certainly informs, and I think we should discuss how that shapes, uh, perspectives on, on, uh, the school decision. Um, but I also, uh, primarily here to talk about the science and, and then we can, kind of get into how that relates to being a parent as well.
3: Okay, I think we've done all of our necessary uh, disclosures before we jump into, a. a I think, a really uh, interesting and important topic. Uh, so let's start with at the beginning. Uh, what is your view of the effects on children, before whether to go back or not? What's the effect that you've seen of children not going to school, meaning, you know, we're not, we're not talking about zero, we're talking about there's a negative effect of remaining at home if the, if the schools don't open in, in September.
1: Yeah, you know, so I, I'm not a, um, an expert on the on, on educational outcomes, but I think something that we, uh, in the public health community, and the medical community, have been looking at closely over the past few months is what do we know about the impact of being out of school for kids? And, uh, you know, there's increasing set of studies showing that um, over the past several months that we've seen um, pretty large gaps in educational engagement and achievement. Uh, For instance, we know that one in five students in Boston public schools were essentially um, never logged into the online platform that they were supposed to be using. And and this has played out in a lot of of cities and places across the country. Um, And and unfortunately, those disparities uh, are worse in uh, lower income communities and communities of color. And so it, it worsens the potential for um, kind of a two-tier system of, of schooling. We also know that uh, schools play a really important role in not just educational related it supports, right? Um, so schools are a key place that low-income kids get food, um, nutritional supports through school. They get um, additional social work supports. Um, we know that schools are really important in being a first line of defense when uh, kids are experiencing unsafe situations at home. Either child neglect or abuse. There and, and there's been studies suggesting that rates of reporting of child neglect have drops in schools of closed, meaning that there are probably cases now going undetected. Uh, and we also know that their direct impacts on um, both physical and mental health for kids being out of school. Um, This is, now it's hard to tease that out completely from the epidemic itself, which is causing a lot of stress and anxiety uh, across the board, but there's some studies showing worsening mental health among kids home from school. And we know that a lot of kids rely on school as the structured environment where they get safe physical activity. And so there are a lot of reasons to worry um, about uh, children being out of school for prolonged periods for any reason. Um, But now with the COVID epidemic, we've got a longer stretch where kids are out of school than really we've ever seen uh, in in recent memory in this country. So now we've talked
3: about the risks of not opening. Now let's get into really the meat of our our conversation today. Let's start with what are the uh, risks of opening? So as a scientist, Uh, What are your views on the risks of children attending class?
1: Yeah, so uh, the first thing to say is a lot of this depends greatly on the context. And by that, I mean what's going to go on in the school, how is the school going to be structured, what kind of safeguards are in place. And it also depends a lot on what's going on in the community outside the school. So I'll I'll come back to that. Um, But the the first thing to know is that we have a fair bit of evidence now that we didn't have six months ago about how coronavirus in particular plays out um, in transmission among children compared to adults. Unlike a lot of other viral illnesses and respiratory illnesses, children seem to be appear to be significantly less likely to both acquire the infection in the first place, and certainly for younger children, less likely to transmit it. For older children, there's some newer data that suggests that they they may be similar in their rates of transmission as adults. But the fact that kids are less likely to get infected in the first place is really key in understanding school-based dynamics of, of of transmission. And then we also know that even when infected, kids are far less likely to experience the kind of serious complications like hospitalizations and deaths that we've seen uh, that co- have caused this huge public health toll uh, in, in the country as a whole. So uh, the short answer is that children are at far lower risk for getting sick and far lower risk for getting seriously sick. But that's not zero risk. And it's gonna be completely proportional to how much virus is there in a community. And so if you were looking at a place where there are, you know, um, thousands of new cases being uh, diagnosed each day and on the rise, as we see in several states, kind of especially in the Sun Belt, the rates there are going to be far higher than if you return to school where we're past the peak and where the community rates have fallen, you know, to, to 10, 20 percent of where they were at, at their worst. So you have to kind of take both of those picture, pictures into account, what's happening outside of school and what's going to happen inside school. And the final thought on what happens inside school is, I think, an important topic to to dive into here, which is you know, there's a big difference between school based uh, uh, events that have 40 kids in a crowded classroom and no protective equipment um, versus you know, cohorts of smaller groups of kids who are with each other all day. They're not mixing with other groups. They have masks that they're wearing when feasible, not necessarily every minute of every day, depending on the age. Um, they have access to sinks or or um, alcohol-based disinfectants, so they can reduce the risk of transmission hand-to-hand. So all of those factors can make schools significantly lower risk or, in their absence, higher risk. And so we, it, there isn't just a reopen schools. In our op-ed, that was what ended up being put in the title. But it's reopen schools when you're doing these other things to keep the schools at lower risk and to keep the community spread rates low. I want to go
3: deeper into each of those uh, issues that you described. Uh, but we're just laying out the the broad strokes here in the beginning. uh, There's not just children in these schools, uh, there's teachers and administrators. Um, So does your science or uh, your analysis give us a sense of these children who are less likely to be sick and less likely to um, experience symptoms and and, uh, complications? What about, what's the story for the people who are in these environments, like teachers? Are they more or less apt to get sick from the children that they're
1: teaching? Yeah. So broadly speaking, we kind of think of there being three big challenges or three opening schools from the public health side. The first is is the risk to kids, which we just talked about. And this is in no particular order. Um, the second is the risk to, to other uh, adults in the, in the schools, particularly teachers and staff. And then the third is the risk to the broader community. So we talked we just talked a lot about the, the risk to kids. The risk to teachers and staff is, I think, in many ways more challenging. And the reason for this, first off, is we know that um, – Adults are at are much higher risk of severe complications from COVID, right? I mean, the, the overwhelming majority of the serious um, hospitalizations and deaths have been among uh, adults, in particular older adults and those with, um, with predisposing you know, risk factors. So we have to, to think really carefully about the environment for adults in the, in the school buildings. So there are a couple of data points that are helpful here. Um, so not only are kids less likely to get infected in the first place, but particularly younger kids are less likely to transmit it, even if they have it. So that's really important. We have increasing, increasingly good data, a lot of which has actually come out of the hospitals that in indoor spaces when mask use is consistent, that the risk of transmission falls. So we've looked in the hospitals, and I shouldn't say we personally, but the, the medical community has been studying kind of transmission risk between doctors and nurses and other staff in hospitals. And for instance, a study that came out of some of the Boston-based teaching hospitals showed that when, uh, when, when a, a uniform mask requirement went into effect in the hospitals, that the rate of transmission healthcare workers fell significantly. So, so that's one of the important tools that will keep both teachers uh, from getting infected from kids, but also from each other, right? Uh, when I think of the high-risk encounters that can happen in the school, actually some of the highest risk ones are going to be six teachers in a small staff room with their masks off eating lunch. That's, that's like particularly high risk as opposed to a teacher in a classroom where they're able to get a little bit of distance from the class and, and people can mostly have their masks on. So, um, But we do know that the teachers are higher risk um, if they get sick, and so we have to be extra careful there. The, the new study that came out since our op-ed that shed some light here was a large study in South Korea looking at the rates of transmission by age group. Um, and what they found there was that the, the rates of transmission for kids ten, uh, under 10, when they were the first one in a household diagnosed, was, was about half of the rate that um, adults were, were experiencing in terms of transmitting to other people. So if you had a kid in the house who had coronavirus, your risk of getting it from them was actually far lower than if the first person in the house to get it was an adult. For the 10 to 19 year olds, this study has gotten a lot of attention because they found that the rates of transmission were similar and potentially slightly larger even than for adults. And so that's an important caveat, and we have to kind of think carefully about the different age groups in school. It suggests to me that mask use and distancing requirements are going to be even more important for older kids. The good news is that those are groups where we can probably have a a reasonable expectation that you could do it, right? You can't have four-year-olds wear masks all day. It's not plausible. But um, can high school students wear it most of the day? And certainly in high-risk times where they're, you know, in closer contact, I, I think that's a very reasonable step to be taking to try to reduce the risk. And, and as school districts consider some of these hybrid models where they're opening potentially in phases, uh, again, older kids are um, both, uh, I think, at, at, at higher risk for transmission and also probably have not quite the same enormous downside in terms of educational experience to be remote. Uh, kindergarten remote learning is, is really difficult to do. Can you do a, a 12th grade class as remote learning? You might be able to do a fair bit with, with a lot of teacher creativity and, and support with resources to to help develop that. So, so that's kind of some of the newest data on that question of transmission from kids to adults.
3: Well, that's encouraging to think that uh, there's, I guess, a, a direct correlation between one's uh, ability to transmit virus and one's ability to wear a mask, or I guess it would be inverse relationship, right? Uh, you know, you, the older I, you get, right. the more contagious you become, uh, and also the more inclined you are to be able to wear a mask. So.
1: Right, and, and I should say that, you know, just thinking about the math here, um, it, it's really important to note that when uh, when we say the transmission rate is similar for these older kids, that's that's if they've been infected in the first place. And we still know from a bunch of other studies well before this New Korea study that, that teens are less likely to get infected if they've been exposed than adults are. So it, this is not to say that, that teens in schools are the same risk of getting other people sick as adults. That's not true because they're, they're uh, depending on the study, maybe 50 or 60% less likely to get infected in the first place. Um, so the, still the single greatest risk of transmission in schools is gonna be adult-to-adult adult contact, especially if they're in spaces where they, they don't have masks or there isn't good ventilation.
3: Sure, I, w- I want to bring uh, Rebecca into the conversation um, and as as a data scientist herself, Rebecca, what aspects of the debate link uh, that we're having here link to your research?
2: Well, I'm certainly happy to hear that children, teenagers, adults that work in school systems may not be at you know the level of high risk that that is sometimes being discussed. I know there are certain public health officials across the globe that have sort of echoed some of the things we're talking about today. Um, as reasoning for reopening their schools. I know that there are other public health officials and, and education officials that have argued the opposite. So it's, it's really great to hear about some of the studies that are, that are going on. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit already, but you know, for society at large, so for everybody else who's not going to school, um, is there a risk that these kids coming home from in-person classes may create spikes in infection, hot spots, sort of, you know, what the governor is saying we're, we're looking out for.
1: Right. So that's the kind of third big uh, category that we have to worry about, right? Kids, kids, teachers and staff in the school, and then the community. So we do have some evidence on this too. Um, now, the evidence here is a little more preliminary, uh, but um, what we've seen, for instance, in school-based tracing studies uh, is that when... Um, cases pop up in schools where a student or a teacher or staff uh, ha- member has been confirmed to have COVID that um, we have not seen in most cases, a lot of secondary spread. And so for instance, you know, there's been, been studies done in Australia, there's a study done in, um, in France where they looked at, at, kids who were symptomatic and in school and later figured out that they had COVID. And um, in many of these cases, they looked at hundreds of, uh, of teachers and, and students who were in close contact, and in most cases we're finding zero, one, or two positive cases total out of those contacts. And then br- more broadly, there have been a handful of studies that have looked at school closures as one of the tools in the kind of social distancing tool- toolkit that policymakers have. What we know from these studies in general is that physical distancing and things like, you know, uh, shutdowns and closures in the aggregate have been very important and successful at reducing the spread of COVID. But when some of the studies have actually tried to parse that out by the different types of interventions, so for instance, the difference between a, a, a mass shutdown, between um, closing down uh, all, all non-essential work outside the home, closing bars and restaurants, closing down large gatherings like rallies and, and sports events, and looking at school closures. In three of those studies that have tried to piece those different aspects out, um, none of them found that school closures were the major driver of, of slowing the spread. Um, now, you know, it's important to note that just because a study doesn't find an effect, doesn't mean that there couldn't be one with a bigger study or with more follow-up or in different circumstances. But at the very least, these studies, some of which have been in the U.S., some have been international, it appears that that with this virus, not all viruses, but with this virus, that closing schools isn't a mainstay of holding down community spread. So, you know, that doesn't mean it has no impact, um, and it doesn't mean that there won't be cases if we reopen schools. There undoubtedly will be some cases, right? Um, The question is the magnitude of it and how much it kind of drives community spread. So even in some of the countries where there's been a lot of attention paid to school-based um, transmission, so Israel is the kind of case study that's gotten a lot of attention. Um, the overall numbers, you know, are a couple thousand um, in the schools have tested positive. This is a country of you know several million people. Um, most students have not been affected. You know, the, the, uh, this is a small percentage. Um, and in and, and Israel is kind of the worst case scenario of the countries that that have been studied in this regard. And they also pretty quickly did away with a lot of the precautions we're talking about. That after a few weeks, they essentially Went back to no limits on classroom size, um, very limited efforts at physical distancing. They had classrooms of 40 students in some cases. So I, I think that that's kind of the worst case scenario. And if you look, meanwhile, most of the European Union nations that have reopened have not documented a lot um, community spread that's tied to to school reopening. Um, You know, Korea has had some schools reopen, but I think sometimes the framing here hasn't been really very helpful. Um, You know, the media will often say things like a newspaper article will say, well, South Korea reopened schools, but then they had to close them again. That's not what happened. They had to close some schools. Um, We should expect that if we reopen schools, some classes are going to have cases. Some schools are going to have clusters of cases. We're going to want to close down classes when there are multiple cases or schools where there's a mini outbreak. Uh, but that doesn't mean it was a waste for everyone else to school it. I mean, you kind of think of this as we're trying to invest in kids and we want to bank as much educational investment as we can. and if if Covid allows us to do eighty percent of the school year in person for eighty percent of kids, that's a huge amount of investment that we ought to be trying to get. and And if we end up instead at saying, well, because we might have to close twenty percent of the time for twenty of the schools, we should shut down entirely and go to remote the whole time. I, I think that that is is highly, unlikely to produce the same net benefit to kids and in terms of our investment. So we really have to kind of, this isn't an all or nothing. Um, it's not going to be open everywhere for everybody all year. That's just not practical. We have to do the best we can to get the most we can out of our opportunities to have in-person schooling.
2: Great. And, you know, you mentioned some of these international examples and Pioneer just released a report actually surveying some international case studies, um, Finland, Denmark, South Korea, and Japan. Um, and you mentioned Israel as well. Um, and they've provided some examples, I think for the U S and for Massachusetts on, you know, what can, what can we do here to, to reopen schools, but also prevent the spread in schools. And, you know, you just said, you know, it's not going to be an all or nothing reopening, you know, are there certain precautions or steps that the U S Massachusetts, local school districts need to take to make sure we can reopen, but also make sure everyone is safe.
1: Yeah. Well, I, one thing I'll say is that the framing of keeping everybody safe is, is an ideal, but safe is a binary, right? We're talking about managing risk. And um, you know, so schools have never been a risk-free environment. Uh, we, we deal with a lot of risks kind of without even thinking about them, right? I mean, you can look at things like bus fatality rates of kids getting to school, and you can look at influenza every year. Uh, this is an order of magnitude different. I'm not equating them, but I am saying that we we are, are used to the idea that there's some risks we have to deal with if we want to have schools and we need schools. Uh, There are some groups where the trade-offs are just very different. So I think every school district needs to very carefully think about what it's going to do for high-risk students and for high-risk teachers and staff, right? Those trade-offs I just described earlier about the risk to teachers and staff, that's kind of in the aggregate. But if you're an older teacher or you're a teacher with a a, a family member you're caring for who's at very high risk medically, that trade-off may no longer be reasonable to expect you to be doing in-person schooling. And and this isn't a situation where we want to just kind of cut pe- cut, cut off kind of committed teachers and leave them out in, in the cold if they can't come into the school to teach. We're going to need some remote learning uh, at various points in this year. Pretty much, I would expect, most places in the country. And whether that's for a subset of kids who are too high risk to be in school or parents whose preference is that they don't want their kids in school, we, we should be kind of trying to match those resources. So you know, teachers and staff who are too high risk to be present in the school or don't or aren't comfortable with that we have some options that allow us to do some of the um, the schooling in, in a safer environment for them, and the same thing for for the kids again who who really can't be necessarily in the same uh, classroom as uh, under the same conditions as as other kids so that that's an important factor um, you know the the international comparisons I think are very helpful, but we still are going to have to look t- uh, at the unique context of our own schools too right and, and there is a huge amount of variation I think one of the lessons i learned this week um, in, in kind of the aftermath of having this op-ed published and, and communicating with a fair number of educators uh, afterwards is just, you know, we all know that school districts vary a lot, but I think the, the policy response needs to be really hyper-attuned to that variation, right? So what, what's feasible in one school building is not necessarily feasible in another building. And, and, and it points to a need for significant investment in schools, especially in low resource settings, to make a lot of the steps I'm talking about practical, right? If you if you have poorly ventilated, overcrowded rooms and don't have sinks and don't have alcohol uh, sanitizers, very little of what I just told you probably applies because no schools have gone back, uh, for the most part, uh, in, into really overcrowded, underfunded environments with high rates of community spread. Most of the countries that have reopened have already kind of flattened their curve, at least Um, somewhat, though a few schools never closed at all in certain countries. So we have to kind of meet schools where they're at. And I think it's going to take a major investment of funding. Um, And uh, the other part of this piece that we haven't talked about is what's going on outside of schools, right? The policy decision about reopening schools should not be made in isolation from the choices that we're making in other aspects of the economy. Now, here's where we get into personal bias, right? I'm a parent. Um, I highly value my kids' education. Um, And if you told me that one of the costs of getting my kids back into school was that we would close casinos for the upcoming year, I'd be perfectly fine with that. Now, I don't own a casino. I don't invest in casinos. I don't go to casinos. But there are trade-offs here that I think societally we can look at and say, yeah, that's a pretty high-risk environment. That's a lot of adults. They're, They're having drinks and food. They're taking masks off if they're wearing them at all. They're big spaces. This doesn't sound like the best uh, use of our kind of basically our public health capital, right? That we've only got a certain amount of activities we can allow to happen without the virus getting out of hand. And so I think we really need to be thinking carefully about that. And anyone who wants to get their kids back in school or any anyone in the community who doesn't have kids but is worried about uh, kids being home from school needs to think really carefully about, well, what services are critical to society and which ones are, are optional benefits and things that might be worth less to society and higher risk than having kids in school. And so I would certainly, in in the op-ed, we talk about is having gyms open and bars and restaurants for in-person dining and large gatherings—is that a higher priority item than getting kids in school? We're having a lot, a lot less discussion about any of those activities, unfortunately. Even in a state like Massachusetts, where you know there's a lot of attention to COVID, and I think generally the, the state has been quite engaged in trying to control community spread. Um, so that you know that again, I recognize the bias here, but I would put a higher value on school than some of those other economic activities.
2: Absolutely, and. There's a lot of trade-offs, you know, when we're thinking about COVID and reopening, and that's a really important one. So um, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, Your op-ed in The Globe acknowledges sort of the political debate around reopening schools. Um, It's very heated, uh, where you said, ignore Trump, instead listen to the science. Um, If the science, as you've explained, supports careful reopening and in-person schooling, um, what are the forces that are pushing to keep schools closed right now?
1: Well, um, so, you know, it's interesting. So some of the pushback we got is from people who said, well, we agree with President Trump. Why do you have to badmouth him in your op ed? Um, and I think what we said is, well, you know, sure, for President Trump, being ignored is probably the worst thing of all. But for, for we aren't actually saying that we're not trying to rebuke the president's stance on schools and we're not trying to support it because I think there's a lot of missing nuance. Right. Um, in needing to invest in schools. Threatening to cut off funding is not productive, um, and we're also not saying open schools at all costs, no matter what happens. We said open schools, along with taking aggressive steps to, to slow community spread. And I think the administration has not been particularly vocal on on a lot of those on those latter issues. But um, you know, the the I think the biggest barriers to reopening are first off is just people's very understandable fear of what will happen with this virus, and that start starts with. People in the schools, parents, you know, some parents were really worried about their kids being back in school. Uh, Teachers and staff were quite worried about being physically present in the schools. And um, community members who say, well, you know, this, this sounds really bad. Just keep the kids at home and have them study on the computer. I think that's an easier position to take when you haven't seen what remote learning looks like for young children, um, with even the best of intentions, that this is just really hard. Um, but uh, I, so I think that, that that kind of fear is, is the first and foremost driver. Um, and it's not unreasonable, but it's about kind of trying to balance the risks and, and again, create an environment where, where the, those at highest risk have other options and those who are at maybe lower risk, than they might anticipate or understand to really be clear about the evidence and to make sure we're investing in the steps that will make the schools lower risk um, for, for returning. We're, we're getting close to the end of the
3: show. And um, so we know there are many policymakers that listen to Hublonk into this uh, podcast. So if we're, we're turning our mind to, to them, you mentioned investing in, uh, in schools. Uh, what does that look like? What would you like to see if you were uh, standing in front of uh, the governor and the legislature? What, what needs to happen both as a parent, a scientist, a, a medical doctor? What what would you like to see to ensure schools uh, open in Massachusetts safer?
1: Yeah, so I, I think um, when we look at the trillions of dollars that Congress is talking about, you know, has already and is talking about spending an additional COVID relief, uh, schools need to be a very high priority. And that's for a couple of reasons. First is just the long-term outcomes related to educational investment uh, have a huge return to society. Um, it's also protecting the least among us, right? It's the kids who are in poor neighborhoods, who have limited access to remote learning, whose families don't have the job flexibility to support the kids while they do that. They're the ones who are missing out the most but it's also a big economics form of stimulus, right? I mean, this is net, we don't even mention this in our op-ed because it's not first, second, or third on our list of reasons to reopen school, but obviously getting kids in school in person enables parents to work. Um, And so if you're trying to kind of boost the economy through a stimulus bill, it's a it's a wise investment to not just spend $50 billion, but some educators' uh, uni- uh, uh, analysis has suggested that $250 or $300 billion in federal funding might be needed to get most schools to the place they need to be um, to, to have uh, lower risk reopening. So this isn't a time to go skimpy on school investment. Um, so that would be one thing. I would also like to see us having much more deliberate conversations about how how all of the phases of reopening interact. Um, that you know, so we we can't sit and get breathless and argue to we're red right in the face about reopening schools unless we're also going to talk about all of the other aspects of reopening that are going on that actually may in some cases be higher risk and make it harder to reopen schools. So I would like us to really carefully be looking at that. Now Massachusetts, again, has done a really good job at, at flattening this curve for the time. We'll see we'll see what happens going forward. But if you're in a state now that has kind of shot up over the past you know two months and now we're looking at, rates that are 10 times higher than what we're seeing in Massachusetts with no end in sight, uh, talking about reopening schools is a non-starter unless you're also going to talk about the things to hold down community spread. Uh, and so you have to do that as a package. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that would be, those would be my two biggest pick, messages would be we need to invest um, and we, we need to keep down community rates to make schools plausible to reopen. And I guess the final thing I'll, I'll vouch for here is again, as a consequence of what I've kind of heard over the past week since writing this op-ed is I would love us to continue a nuanced and flexible dialogue here. I don't think I think almost nobody who feels strongly about schools is engaging in this out of bad faith. I think people have different perspectives and how they different and different priorities and different risk tolerance. But what we can't do is just yell past each other. Um, you know, this is one where we're not actually it's not falling along the traditional kind of red and blue dynamic. I mean, there's some of the, some of that dynamic, but, but a lot of this is about per- people's personal experiences. How old are your kids? What's life like in school? Do you have kids? What age do you teach? If you're a teacher, how do you feel about being in a different school environment? So I, I, I think, um, we should, we should take each other face value that we're trying to figure out the right way forward and, and hopefully have a constructive conversation about it.
3: Well, I agree. I hope this podcast is part of the, uh, solution, uh, uh and, uh, we're moving towards a more, uh, civil debate and conversation about the issues. All right, so our final question is, um, again, I'm bringing it back to the fact that you're a parent, uh, not already, not all our listeners have PhDs in in public health. Uh, When the school bus shows up and your child's expected to get on it, um, how are you as a parent going to prepare and ensure your child uh, is as safe as possible?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. So um, Massachusetts reopened summer camps with uh, strict guidelines a couple weeks ago. And that was a, a, a kind of a true m- moment of putting your money where your mouth is or, you know, are you going to really kind of uh, how does it feel in theory versus in practice when it's your own family? Um, and so, you know, the, I think the evidence on, on, on children transmission, and I think the community rates where they are right now in Massachusetts. So, um, you know, our kids are in camp. Um, we're, we're doing Little League. Uh, kids are running around with their masks on. Um, We're we're doing our best to to try to manage those risks, but also to give our kids a childhood Um, and to also be responsible to other members of the community, right? And this is clearly not just about the kids. Uh, This is about teachers. This is about staff. This is about people who don't have um, the the luxury of deciding, you know, uh, whether they they are willing to risk uh, exposure to this because they're super high risk for complications. So um, the shorter answer is we are trying to continue to live our lives. It's a day-by-day risk balance. Um, we are, are not shut in all day, but, uh, but also I recognize that the, these are tough choices for everybody and, and parenting has probably never been harder than, than it has been over the past six months.
3: Well, that's a great way to end of the show. I really appreciate the uh, uh, the facts, uh, but the nuance and the uh, ability to uh, talk about none of our choices are binary. It's all about uh, understanding how it all fits together and, and degrees of, of uh, adaptation. So. Uh, You've really added a lot, I think, to the the debate, in addition to your op-ed that was uh, uh,
1: personally well-received in the uh, the book. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Summer. Thanks again. Great to talk with you both.
3: Okay, we're back. I'm joined by Pioneer Institute's Rebecca Paxton. Uh, I really thought that was a great conversation uh, and answered a lot of questions for me. What were your impressions, Rebecca?
2: I was really uh, left with the idea of the trade-offs that we are all thinking about, we've been thinking about since March, Um, and I think it was really great to hear his take on what we should be thinking about if we're going to prioritize reopening schools in person, um, what we should be thinking about in other areas of reopening, um, and how to balance all of those choices that we're going to make.
3: Yes, and uh, I I don't know if it was a plug for Hubwonk, but he seemed to suggest that This topic deserves a lot of conversation, a lot of nuance, a lot of introducing uh, the science uh, at many different levels, and um, we haven't been doing much of that lately. So I hope uh, this conversation goes a long way to helping policymakers and parents understand what they should do in the fall. So
0: thank you very much for joining us again
3: on the show, Rebecca.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me back.
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are three ways to support us. You can give us a five-star rating. You can offer a review, which would be welcome, or you can share it with friends. If you have suggestions for me, comments, or ideas for future episodes, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.